welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So joining us today, we have Mark Worrell. Mark's day job is as a paediatric intensive care doctor at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Glasgow. Uh, he's a paediatric retrieval specialist with Scott Star and is a basics responder support clinician. And he's here to chat to us this morning about pain and how we deal with pain in kids. Mark, thanks so much for coming on to join us. Uh, hi, Dave. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So kids in pain is always a bit of an emotive topic. How do we start? Because with adults, it's pretty straightforward. You can just ask them some questions. With kids, I feel like you're kind of onto a loser before you even before you even fetch the drugs box. Yeah, it's um, it's quite tricky sometimes, isn't it? Trying to assess if the child's in pain and what severity of pain they've got, because they could be crying because they've had their favourite toy taken off them, or they could be crying because they've got a significant injury. So it can be tricky, can't it? They often seem to be crying just because they've seen my face. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what are the kind of go-to tools for dealing with kids? I'm guessing we're going to have to vary it by age to a degree. I think so, yeah. It depends on the age of the child. If you're talking about pain scoring, it depends on the age and the development of the child, and it depends on if they are normally fit or well or not. So I think it's quite complicated, especially when you look at the array of pain scores around. But I think sometimes taking it back to the basics and thinking about why are you seeing this child is probably quite an important thing to think about before you start thinking about pain scores. So what's your approach to a child in pain? I think the approach is first is looking at the history and what's happened. If it's trauma, what's the mechanism of injury? If it's something medically related, what's happened to the child? Because sometimes that can give you a hint, is this going to be something that's going to be quite painful or not? The parents or caregivers are very useful in trying to help with that because they may have been used to their child hurting themselves before and they'll know what their cues are if they've got pain or not. Something about non-verbal children here and small children. So sometimes they know what things they do if they're in pain. And then, then we can look at pain scores after that. So there's visual and numerical pain scores that we can talk about. So I'm guessing almost the primary motive is to unpick what is perhaps like an emotional overlay away from the underlying pain issue so that you can then treat the two of them separately is that a reasonable yeah absolutely right so very much like adults there's always a physical and a psychological emotional context to pain and that can be an acute pain or you can talk about complex pain and chronic pain but in children i think you've also got to take the developmental component into that as well so the physical psychological emotional and developmental components i think they all go together in, in different amounts child in pain Okay, so if we go with the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that's closest to adult pain, and look at adolescence, I'm guessing for the majority of adolescent folk, you can get away with just a almost a numeric rating scale as you would do with an adult. Yeah, absolutely. So 0 to 10, can you rate your pain? Or whatever you normally ask, I would do the normal things for an adolescent, and I think you'll get the answer as you normally would do for an adult. So yeah, don't start changing things. And And what about the kind of pre-teens, junior school age kids? Well, I think you can still try the 0 to 10 and see how you get on with that because some of the younger kids are quite smart and they'll be able to do that. So I would still, again, try that first. And then if that's not working for whatever reason, then you could think about using a different type of pain scale. But I think try to keep it simple is important. 
Okay. And what are the other options if you're not getting anywhere with numbers? Well, there's the Wong Baker faces that has got happy faces and unhappy faces and very, very unhappy faces. And that goes with the numerical scale we've talked about before. So you can ask the child to point to the picture they want to, which is how un unhappy or happy you are. So that's one thing that you could use. And I believe the Scottish Amazon Surface use that um, already. And the other one is a flax scale, um, but that's quite more complicated looking at faces and body movements, which is more useful for neonates and infants. But that's usually hospital based. But the two that we talk about for pre-hospital are the numerical scale and the Wong Baker faces, the ones that I have come across. And am I right in saying that flak actually you can extend out to adults as well in terms of looking at how much discomfort they're in and, and whether their numeric rating of their pain is in keeping with, with what's going on objectively? Yeah, absolutely right. I think you could use it for a whole range of the ages. But it's trying to find, think of a tool that it's easy to use in the pre-hospital world or in a world where you've got time constraints and other things that are complicating the situation. So yes, the FLAC is a useful tool, but it's trying to think about what is useful in the context of the pre-hospital world. Now, you've already talked about kind of chatting with, with parents. Once you get down to you know, truly pre-verbal, down to neonatal kids... Is there anything that is reliable in terms of pain scaling aside from just the end of the bed gut feeling? I think your gut feeling is a useful tool. Speaking to the parents and asking them what they think is going on is very useful as well. And parents are attuned to small nuances of small babies and infants. They know when they're sore, they're not sore. And I think you're very useful to take the experience of the parents into mind with this. Let's, for the sake of argument, go with pain following trauma, because in some senses that's, it's often less complex than, than yes. medical pain. Now, again, with adults, we've got a fairly structured who pain ladder, and we've got a few adjuncts that we can throw in, a few atypical drugs that we can use in the mix. How many of those can we safely use in kids? Well, I think you can safely use most of the stuff you would do in adults and children. The thing is going to be is that you're going to need a smaller amount, aren't you? It's going to be age-based. And if you turn to the age-appropriate page, say that JR Calc is going to have a lot of those medications that you may well use in adults available in children. I think the only one you can't use in children less than 12 is codeine these days because of the risk of respiratory depression in the rapid metabolizers. But apart from that, if you open the JR Calc, you will find a lot of medications that you can use. Um, Absolutely. And those age-on-a-page bits of JR Calc make the whole thing worth buying, even if it's cheap, even if you throw away everything other than the age-on-a-page sections. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so a kid in significant trauma, you're going to reach for drugs that you're familiar with and you're going to go off the dosing on the age-on-a-page. Yeah, I think so. The thing to think about is oral analgesia. So Calpol, paracetamol and ibuprofen are great analgesics, especially if you can add on to them on top of that with other stronger analgesics. But also people will know giving a child Calpol, the actual physical delivery of Calpol can make them feel better. So it's got some nutritive effects. It's certainly a psychological overlay and, and I don't know how effective it is now they've made it less tasty. And they've taken the sugar out of it. So the, most of the ones you get from prescription and some of the ones over the counter have got no sugar in them. So yes, they haven't got sugar in them. And am I writing that sugar is thought to have a, an analgesic effect in the very young? Yeah, right. So that, that was a nice move on to that. So sucrose is very effective, especially in the smaller children. So thinking about IV access or blood sampling in neonates, sucrose, you can get special samples of sucrose to give to these children. That can be very effective in trying to reduce how much pain they get. So it's great for mild, short procedural things. 
Um, it can be used up to about a year, year and a half, but it becomes less effective. But yeah, there is a good evidence for using sucrose for mild pain or for procedures. And I guess even for older kids, there is a degree of emotional reassurance of a sweet stickers, the non-pharmacological stuff. Absolutely. So distractive play therapy can be very, very effective. Uh, and we use that quite a lot in the hospital. But the parents can do that as well. So the good old mobile phone with their favourite cartoons or game on it can be really effective in distraction. And, and the parents themselves being nearby and physically having contact with the child can be very effective as well in, in trying to reduce how much analgesia they may potentially need, depending on how much psychological impact there is into that. What do you do about the parents? Because certainly when I've been dealing with kids, half the treatment is actually almost targeted at the parents. If, if you know you're going to need to do something that's uncomfortable, so splinting a limb or moving mm -hmm. a kid who's sore, is there anything you do pre-procedure to bring the parents on board and talk them through it? one of the areas of children isn't it the family come as a package not as individuals so I think you if you talk about splinting you have to splint the child's limb but actually the splinting involves the entire family as a package so you need to have a bit of a discussion brief with with the parents to say what you're doing and why you're doing it and to explain what you're doing so you need to explain it in terms for the parent but also need to explain it in terms to the child be that you explain what's going to happen for splinting to the child or the parent doing that depending on, on how that interaction goes with that family but it's looking at using as much as, as a team between you, the parent, and the rest of the clinicians and with you at that time to splint. So certainly the parental anxiety is going to drive a child's anxiety and trying to calm the situation can be really powerful. We can get onto drugs later on, but you know the simple thing of giving some maybe intranasal or opioid will chill the child out, but will also the parent will become less anxious because they can see the child is less sore. And so the whole dynamic changes. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the kind of opioids because that's often in the back of an ambulance or in somebody's basics bag. We've got a reasonably limited choice of drugs and beyond a little bit of perhaps some cowpole really for big trauma we're going to be heading towards things like morphine and a lot of folk are pretty twitchy about giving opiates to kids what are your thoughts and approach for opioid for severe pain in kids so the opioids you can give them in various routes so most people give it intravenously you can obviously give it intramuscularly but that's not usually done in the pre-hospital world for morphine and you can also give it intraosis also the intranasal route i think the struggle sometimes is dimorphine and fentanyl Potentially ketamine can be given for the intranasal route, but you need an atomizer as well, and you need a separate crib sheet about how much you should dilute into a one mil volume to atomize. So that is usually not always available to all responders and pre-hospital clinicians, but the intravenous route is obviously a route that's often used in adults, which can easily be used in children once you've gained that. Um, the jail calc, we've said already before, has doses in it. And I think people are worried primarily, I presume, because of the respiratory depression you could get. But it doesn't mean you need to give the entire dose immediately. You titrate the response, which you might well do in an adult. So giving up to 10 milligrams of morphine intravenously, you're not usually going to give the entire amount in one go. You're going to titrate it. So work out the dose. The gel calc will have the dose in there for you for intravenous morphine. Dilute it up if it's a small dose into 10 mils with saline. And then give that dose over a period of time bit by bit if you're worried about the respiratory effects that you might get with it. It's kind of reassuring because I think everyone assumes that they're going to give the faintest snifter of morphine and the kid's going to stop breathing. But just like adults, it's not really the case. No, it's not the case. Kids are designed to breathe and you're going to need to give quite a lot of opioids probably to try to get to that effect. And 
usually that's going to be a, a way above the dose that it says in the JR calc. And just so that we've kind of covered off the, the, the bad outcomes scenario, uh, if we do overcook it and you get some respiratory depression, presumably your option is exactly the same. Bag them, a little bit of oxygen and potentially think about naloxone if you've got issues with airway. Absolutely. So it's exactly the same you do in an adult. So that should be exactly the same you would do in any age of child. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned ketamine, my favourite special K. I've used it in, in the kind of ED context. I've used ketamine in kids and it seems to be fantastic for short procedural type stuff. Yes. Now, my concern's always been that it's pretty hallucinogenic and a lot of adults really struggle with the cerebral side effects of it. How is it tolerated in kids? First of all, children can also get delirium from ketamine and the visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations. The difficulty you've got is, we've already talked about, is their development. They may not show that as normal. One example is they may, if they're non-verbal, what they may be doing is trying to grab purple dinosaurs out of the sky and things like that. So they may well still get the same side effects as adults, but it's very difficult to quantify that. And it's very difficult because they may not portray the same things we get in adults. But I think... Ketamine, as you've already suggested, is very effective for adults and, and is still very effective in children. It just comes down to what dose you're going to use. And here again, it's going to be having a, a weight-appropriate dose. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned intranasal earlier on. I want to come back to touch on those tables because a lot of folk find them pretty confusing. And am I right in saying that there's not a ketamine dose for kids in the JR Calc? There is not a ketamine dose in the GeoCalc that I'm aware of at the moment. But I'm aware that GeoCalc is getting rewritten. But I think the scope of practice for most paramedics may not include ketamine at the moment. Though that scope of practice for advanced paramedics, it may well be there. So I think it will be an added crib sheet with doses you might need. That's what I would assume. Absolutely. And certainly for somebody like me who predominantly deals in adults, you know, ketamine in kids is something that I've come across but as a kind of third party to it, mm. and certainly something I would want some pretty tight governance on. I think you need to tight governance. I think you, you had to have had experience probably in adults, and I think most people wouldn't be embarking giving ketamine to children when they've not used ketamine before. So I think in experienced practitioners who are used to giving ketamine in adults, you could see this being a very useful drug, and also having experience in dealing with any of the side effects you might get with the ketamine is also very useful. But, you know, if you're not sure and you're really far away and you have used ketamine before but not sure the dose, pick up the telephone to Scott Start and we can have a discussion to help you over the telephone if that needs to be done. And that's, yeah, that's a fantastic resource and, and definitely one to have on speed dial. Now, we've bounced around intranasal a couple of times and it's always felt like this was going to be the biggest thing in drugs for kids because you didn't have to worry about cannulating them and... You could get pretty quick, pretty effective pain control with a variety of drugs, but it, it feels like it's never quite taken off. What are the issues with intranasal as, a, as an approach? I think it's the delivery system you need. So you need atomizers and you need a small volume. So they say about one mil is what the optimal dose you need. I'm unsure why it's not taken off. I think it's a very effective route. We use it in the hospital reasonably often for um, sedation or pre-medication. And they use it in the emergency department, as we already talked about intranasal dimorphine as a rapid analgesic the children and without IV access you can calm the child down get some memory on then get IV access so I think it's very effective unsure why it's not been as effective in the UK I think in adults the um, rollout of methoxyfluorine has changed that in adults so I think it's only a smaller number now because you can't use methoxyfluorine in the UK for anyone under the age of 18 so I think in adults you've got a different route for different international analgesia but you haven't got that in children so I think it's a combination of 
availability of atomizers, the experience of using the intranasal route, um, and knowing what dose to give. And certainly in terms of the Penthrox chatting to the folks at Galen, they are actively looking at whether they can be Penthrox for pediatric population. So now, if you've got your atomizer and you've got some, let's say, diamorphine, you then end up facing this horrible table, which has got doses and weights and all sorts written on it, and is frankly pretty intimidating and involves lots of mental maths. Can you just talk me through how you would prepare, draw up, and then administer a dose of, let's say, diamorphine to a kid? What is important is dimorphine comes in different strengths in the vials. So the protocol that you're going to use needs to marry up with the ampule that you've got. So say if you've got a 10 milligram vial of dimorphine, then the chart needs to represent that. And if it's a 5 milligram ampule, it needs to represent that as well. So sometimes that's the challenge is having the correct vial of dimorphine available. So if we use the example of a 10 milligram vial of dimorphine, you would get the child's weight, which is on the first column. The second column is how much saline you're going to put into that ampule. So if you're 20 kilos, you're going to put a mil of saline into there. And then when that's mixed, you're going to draw 0.2 mils of solution. And then you're going to then inject that monatomizer into the nostril. If you were 40 kilos, you are going to put less in there. You're only going to put a half a mil of saline there. But you're still going to give 0.2 mils of solution. What you're making then is a more concentrated solution because you're putting less saline in it. So the 0.2 mils is always the standard volume you're going to give intranasally, but the concentration, how concentrated the dimorphine is in that 0.2 mils is going to go up as you get bigger. And I think this is the bit that, you know, working predominantly with adults, I find confusing because normally I just push the syringe in a little bit further and give a bigger volume, but always giving the same volume and varying the concentration is a bit of a mind game for me. Yes, and I think there has to be really strong governance and you need to be used to doing this because you can imagine the risk of drug errors is potential here. And particularly because, yeah, dimorphine seems to change strength pretty regularly in that folk have 5 milligram vials, 10 milligram vials. It's all, mm -hmm. it's all a little bit chaotic. Yeah, and I think that's why some people have talked uh, and looked at using fentanyl instead, instead of dimorphine, because it's already in a, a liquid form so and you're using different volumes instead of a set volume you talked about administering it can you just talk us through actually sort of logistically how you go about that for folk who've never given a, an atomized nasal dose before okay so you talked already before you need to have a chat with the entire family because someone's going to have to potentially hold this child if they're on their knee if they're obviously lying on a stretcher or a bed that's different but you're going to have to think about how this child's going to be because they may be distressed you need to close one of the nostrils and have the other nostril obviously free to inject. You can have a one mil syringe, which is going to have the 0.2 mils of the solution in it. Some people deliberately leave a bit of air behind the 0.2 mils, so you've got the liquid at the top and a bit of an air bubble underneath. I don't think it matters too much. You need to put the atomizer onto the end of the one mil syringe, which is like a dome-shaped thing. So it, basically that stops. If you use a normal one mil syringe without the atomizer, the dimorphine would potentially just come out on the outside of the nose, so it won't be instilled into the nasal passage. And then you just need to just squirt it, and that's it. The child may be a little bit distressed when you do this, but with the dimorphine working or another opioid, then this will get better shortly. But I think you need to think about the logistics of giving it, because it's not just having the one mil syringe and putting it up the nose, because you may have a child that's quite anxious and in quite a lot of pain, and it's just trying to make sure everyone knows what they're doing before you do it. 
seems to work better when the child has just got to the end of a good hearty lung full of scream. Um, so they're then in a kind of inhalational phase and you end up getting less sprayed around the place. Yeah, absolutely. It's not to be inhaled, it's just to sit in the uh, nasal passage. It's got a lot of capillaries in there, so people know you can get nosebleeds quite easily. It's to sit there because it's quite vascular in the back of the nose. That's where it's going to work. Brilliant. So we've talked all the way through from the simple stuff and a bit of working around very small kids, and we've run through in, in a little bit of detail some of the, the more complex pain management strategies. Now, with all these, we've been getting folk to give kind of three top tips. And what are your thoughts about suggestions for folk to take away? I think the first one is a child that's in pain. I think a family come as a unit and trying to work out what's wrong with the child and using their parents' knowledge of how the child usually displays pain is really important. But also getting them on board to help with some of the psychological and emotional management is really helpful. Using the JR Calc and keeping to the doses in there is extremely helpful. And then use of opioids, I think, not to be scared of it. If you are concerned to give a bit, then to give a bit, bit more. That's what I think the three things I can think of. Fantastic. Mark, that's brilliant. I know we're going to get you back for a few of these podcasts looking at, at all things paediatric. So we'll hopefully get you back and speak soon. That's great, Dave. Thanks again. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.